Dress? The History of Fashion is a production of iHeartRadio. With over 7 billion people in the world, we all have one thing in common. Every day, we all get dressed. Welcome to Dressed, the History of Fashion, a podcast that explores the who, what, when of why we wear. We are fashion historians and your hosts, Cassidy Zachary and April Callahan. Cass, the subject of today's podcast, has remarked the following, quote, Style is the only thing you can't buy. It's not in a shopping bag, a label, or a price tag. It's something reflected from our soul to the outside world and emotion. And that very beautiful sentiment is from a very beautiful human, one of contemporary fashion's most beloved figures, Albert Elbaz. Oh, yeah. And Albert is universally adored, both professionally and personally, both by yourself and myself, um, <laughs> you know, and we were all so saddened and, and joined the fashion world in mourning the loss of one of the greats. Um, Albert unexpectedly died last year in April from COVID. What a loss. And to say that fashion communities were both stunned and saddened is really an understatement. But Albaz, as we will learn shortly, would not have wanted his death to be mourned. Rather, he wanted his life to be celebrated. And this is exactly what is happening currently at the Design Museum Halone in Israel. This week, we are joined by fashion historian Yara Kidar, who curated the exhibition Albert Elbaz Dream Factory, which is now on view through February of next year, 2023. Spanning the entire museum, this is an incredible look into Elbaz's life and work, and we are so, so pleased to welcome Yara to the show. Yara, thank you so much for joining us on Dress. Yara, a bit of a overdue welcome to Dressed. <laughs> Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, um, you and I actually were just chatting. You and I, of course, met many years ago when you were living in New York. But the last time we saw each other was at a conference in Canada. And today, as we were chatting, you were actually in Israel. So you're really bringing fashion history international here. <laughs> um, we would love to hear a little bit about your journey to becoming a fashion historian, and also maybe about some of the exhibitions that you have curated the last few years before we talk about the one at hand today. Sure. So uh, before we start, I just want to thank you for having me on my favorite podcast. Okay. And Yeah, I've been looking forward to it. So thank you so much. As for me, uh, I am an independent fashion historian and curator. Um, I'm also working on my PhD these days at the Hebrew University. Originally, I have a BA in fashion design from Shankar College, uh, which is actually the department in which Albert Elbaz graduated mm. um, 25 years earlier. And I moved to New York in 2012, and I got my master's degree at NYU Costume Studies. Um, I also interned at FIT and at the Mets Costume Institute. And during that time, I started curating gallery exhibitions, uh, mainly smaller exhibitions that focused on fashion and the relation of fashion to art and culture. And then in 2017, I got my first chance to curate a major museum exhibition at Design Museum Cholon. And the Albert Elbaz exhibition is actually my third 
exhibition in that museum. And all three exhibitions that I created there um, took over the entire museum. So that was... Oh, wow. Yeah. Um, my first exhibition in the museum was dedicated to the Israeli-French actress Ronit El-Kabetz. And the second exhibition was called The Ball. It was dedicated to fashion and escapism. It opened right after the pandemic. Um, but actually, I started working on it four years before coronavirus. But it, it was amazing that by the time it opened, escapism was really needed. Um, <laughs> yeah, exactly. So it was really the idea was to focus on the ways in which fashion allows us to escape reality um, and overcome our daily challenges. So it was really beautiful to see how people could relate to it, um, especially after the pandemic. Yeah. And, uh, and now I'll bear Elbaz, uh, is, uh, it, it's wonderful to see the visitors coming and uh, yeah, the museum is open. Everything is great. Yes. So the full title of the exhibition that we're going to discuss today is Albert Elbaz, The Dream Factory. So it's currently on view at the Design Museum Holon in Holon, Israel. Would you tell us a little bit about how this particular exhibition came to be and also why the location of Holon is significant in it being cited there? Uh, of course, and it, it's a great question because the location is of major significance in, in this story. Um, Albert was born in Casablanca and he grew up in Holon. His family moved to, to Israel when he was eight months old. I actually um, checked and the museum is located 17 minutes walk from his where he, the home where he grew up. His childhood um, had a really important significance in his, in his career in general. He called it the place or the town where he started dreaming. And it, it was the place that enabled him to dream. So he always saw Israel as his home, even um, years after he had moved. Um, he moved to New York and then to Paris and lived there for many years. And everything started a year ago after Albert passed away. He passed away from coronavirus um, in April 2021. And his partner of 28 years, Alex Koo, and his brand, AZ Factory, the brand that he launched it four months before he passed away. So his brand and his partner collaborated to create a tribute show um, to Albert in Paris in October 5th, 2021, um, five months after he passed away, and invited 46 renowned and up-and-coming designers to create their homage to Albert under his mantra, Love brings love, which was the sentence that his mother used to say to him all the time. And then a couple of days after the the fashion show took place, which was really a memorable night, a, a beautiful homage of not just respect for his uh, life as a designer, but also for um, his personality and a tribute to the love that was really leading his way. Um, so after a couple of days later, um, his teacher from Shenkar College, Shelly Veltheim, uh, she was his teacher and she also worked with him for many, many years, reached out to me and asked if I would want her to connect me with Alex Koo to maybe look at the possibility of traveling the tribute to Israel. 
And I immediately thought, well, it has to be, it has to be in Cholon. It has to be in his hometown. We have to celebrate his life there. And then it, it's also, it's a beautiful building. It was desi- designed by Ron Arad, um, really um, an architectural gem. And there was another interesting thing. Um, I mentioned the Ronit el Kabetz exhibition, my first exhibition at Design Museum Cholon. It was dedicated to Ronit el Kabetz, who was um, an actress, filmmaker, a fashion icon, women's rights warrior, an incredible woman. And she was also a close friend of Albert. Oh. Yes. And she only wore his designs to the red carpet, to the Golden Globe Awards, to Cannes Festival. Everything was always just Albert. Um, and they met actually when he was a student and he she would model for him. So when I started working on the Ronit el exhibition, um, Albert reached out to me and offered to share his thoughts about how the exhibition should be made because they were so close and, you know, he was this genius creative um, and he was very generous, you know, to offer this. And we met in New York and I was, you know, for every, especially for Shankar graduates to meet Albert Elbaz and to everyone in fashion, it was like meeting the legend, <laughs> flesh and blood. <laughs> and I was so nervous that um, during our talk that my hand would shake while I take notes, <laughs> that I asked his permission um, to record our conversation. And he said yes. And I recorded the whole thing. And, you know, he's telling me about how to create exhibition, what he thinks should be done um, and how it should, you know, avoid being a memorial and how it should not feel like um, it's about death. It should be about life. Um, It should not be a retrospective. It should be a celebration of life in a museum. And then after Shelly Vertime, his teacher, reached out to me, I I said, okay, I, I can offer the museum to build an entire exhibition around the tribute. And that way, we are not going to only show what other designers have designed for him or in his honor. I wanted to show his creations, his life, his story that has never really been told in an organized way, and also to tell a new story. And while I was working on the exhibition, I was looking for something in my computer, and then a sound recording pops up that, you know, conversation of five years earlier. And when you listen to this conversation in a new context, I have a recording of Albert Elbaz explaining me how to create an exhibition in Design Museum Cholon that is not going to be a retrospective, that should not be about death, it should be a celebration of life. And I took every word and then everything started to fly from there. That is an incredible story. I don't know if I've ever heard a backstory like that about an exhibition that was so specific and poignant before. I have chills when when I tell you this story because it's it's really it's it was unbelievable. It was like him guiding me in his voice, especially at the moment, you know, Albert, he was a true legend <laughs> no matter well, you know, if you were a, a Shankar graduate or not. And I was really worried about how, you know, I could do something that would keep up with his standards, with, you know, his thought, his thought, you know, he knew he was, he knew everything and, and he was not there to, to do it. So, yeah. But basically he drew you an audio map of how to get there. <laughs> and thank God. 
I love that you mentioned one of his teachers earlier because one of the more charming anecdotes in your exhibition catalog is one involving one of his elementary school teachers. Would you tell us a little bit about what seven or eight-year-old Albert presented her with and maybe a little bit more about him as a child? <laughs> uh, yeah, that's funny. He said that I think he was uh, seven or, or eight years um, he did a sketch of his teacher every day. Um, she had a really good sense of style. So he drew her every day and kept it in, in his this journal of, of the teacher. And then at the end of the year, he gave her the sketchbook. And she, they, um, they stayed in touch, actually, um, all, all these years. Um, the family told me that she even came to his 50th birthday party. Uh, but she didn't keep the notebook, unfortunately. Ah. <laughs> yeah, I don't think she understood um, the greatness that was um, growing there. Uh, but in terms of Albert, I think this story is really telling about Albert. Um, he was always a dreamer. Mm -hmm. So as early as the age of six, he discovered that he was drawn to fashion. He said it was stronger than him. And instead of writing notes in his uh, notebooks, he would just sketch. But it's interesting that his sisters told me that he remembered everything. He was a really good student. <laughs> he was just, he didn't need to take notes. He just wanted to, to make his sketches. And so he covered his notebooks with sketches of strong women. It's really interesting. He drew police women and female soldiers and he, he um, drew nurses and doctors and, you know, gave them better uniforms. And another amazing thing is that when you look closely at his sketches, you see that he's grading himself. He's giving himself grade to the, about the quality of the design and, and, and the sketch. So you see how early he was directing himself to where he wanted to be. And, you know, he grew up in a tough neighborhood. Um, it should be said, Cholon um, in the 1960s, he was a child born um, to a family of immigrants. And I, I chose to open the exhibition with um, a beautiful quote by Albert. It's like the, the first thing you see when you walk in, he said, we never felt we were wanting for anything simply because everyone had nothing. What we did have were heaps of dreams. I would go to school with two backpacks one with books and notebooks for studying and one with blank paper and coloring pencils for dreaming. Oh, I love that. And that, that's something that carried through his whole career, really. Absolutely. Um, and, and even when he launched AZ Factory, his own brand, he made sketches like personal invites that were hand-sketched, each and every one of them, to the launch of the collection online. And it's it's amazing to see how, you know, he, he makes personal notes to everyone. And it's always, he was always mixing his work with his emotions and, you know, personal messages, writing letters and greeting cards. And, you know, a lot, everyone kept them, of course. <laughs> yes, 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 yes. Quite a treasure. <laughs> The quote that you mentioned earlier from him saying that fashion was greater than him, you know, it was such a strong pull on him. And like so many legendary designers, he seemed to kind of instinctively know that he was destined for greatness from a very young age. He even went so far as predicting as an adolescent that he would 
go on to work for YSL someday. So how is it that young Albert, being from an immigrant family and a little bit of a rough neighborhood, how was it that he was even familiar with Yves Saint Laurent's work? So <laughs> it's, it's amazing. It's a true story. I was fortunate um, to work with his family, his partner, his friends. Um, I collected these stories from everyone who worked with him and also loved him. And the family was a really important value in his life in, in general. His sisters told me that when he was about 10 years old, his aunt um, came to visit from Spain. Um, and she came to the family um, apartment in Cholon and gave his mother a scarf by Yves Saint Laurent. And the sisters said, you know, his mother was stunned by the, the scarf and Albert was stunned by the scarf. And they said he examined it and looked at it from every angle. And then he asked them who, who created this scarf. I don't think he was able to use even the word designed. Mm-hmm. Um, and the sisters told him about, you know, this legendary French designer, the most important designer in the world, Yves Saint Laurent. And then they said that, you know, he was listening. And then he said, you know what? One day I, I'm, I'm going to work for this designer. And then in an incredible way, um, 20 years later, Yves Saint Laurent personally chose Albert as, you know, the first designer to ever succeed him. And he chose him to design his um, ready-to-wear line in 1998, was the first designer to ever walk in YSL's shoes. And he had very big plans for him that the idea was for Albert to succeed him in the fashion house. Didn't go that way later on, but um, it's, it's, it's amazing it's amazing to see how Albert knows how to draw his dreams and to follow mm-hmm. them. And he was able to predict his future. Mm-hmm. His predictive nature in terms of like the trajectory of his career was there very, very young. But at one point, his mother actually expressed concern to his teachers about his early interest in fashion. How did this actually play out within the family? Um, yeah, he, he said that he, his mother went to his teacher and asked her, you know, my son is sketching only women. Um, should I do anything about it? And she was worried about it. And, and the mother and the, the teacher asked her, you know, what would you want him to sketch? And the mother said, well, I don't know, maybe tanks, bombs, soldiers, you know, they were living in Israel. And the teacher said, you know what, let him do what he wants and let's see where it goes. And ever since that point, she never stopped him. And I think this is what's so important about Albert and the city of his childhood and his connection with his mother um, and her mantras is that she really supported him in every step of the way. And, you know, it's not enough to have these big dreams. I think you really need your surroundings to tell you that you can do it and that they believe in you. And no one ever stopped him. Right, right. It was like a very nourishing environment for him creatively. Yeah. So following high school, what were um, his next steps in terms of entering the fashion industry? When I started researching his story, I saw how, um, you know, at every step of his way, he was trying to go into the fashion industry, 
even as a soldier. Um, he served um, in the IDF. And at one point, um, he was an NCO and he reached out to a fashion journalist and asked her <laughs> to help him um, create a fashion show for um, IDF Women's Day. Um, and she helped him. And this was his first step in the fashion industry. I think after that, he understood that he would he wants to really pursue it professionally. Um, he enrolled in Shankar College. Shelley Vertheim, his teacher, said that from the very beginning, it was, you know, undoubtable that a genius has entered the building. Mm -hmm. uh, she said he was not just smart and talented, but also had this charisma and that everyone just loved him, loved working with him. And it enabled him to um, pursue the career that he wanted. After he graduated, his mother um, gave him $800 and he took it in his pocket and flew to New York um, to start the next, next chapter in his career. Why New York specifically? I think, first of all, in terms of New York in the 1980s, you know, it was bustling and there was so much going on. If we think about this period, New York fashion, you have women designers, Donna Karen and, and Ralph Lauren. And, and, and you have, I think American fashion was so, was having a major moment at, at that time. And Albert admired Jeffrey Bean. He wanted to work for Jeffrey Bean. And, and rightly so, he was one of the greatest. For sure. So I think he was aiming to where he thought, you know, the really interesting things were, were happening. Um, and I think he might also have been inspired by Eli Tahari, who is also an Israeli who made great success in the U.S. Um, so I think this also influenced him. Uh, so he traveled to New York, but his beginning there was really rough. Um, he said that he couldn't get a job interview for months. Um, I read somewhere, you know, he said that he was walking around with his portfolio. You know, back in the days, portfolios were heavy and big. Yeah, flopping uh, <laughs> it around the city. <laughs> exactly. And he said he was looking at the shopping windows and, and, and all he saw was like a huge portfolio with a sad face on top of it. And no one would hire him. Said didn't come from the right background, the right school, the right family, the right look. But after a few months, he was able to get um, a job interview where he dreamed he would um, at Jeffrey Bean. Mm -hmm. And he said that he made it to the interview. And then at the end of the interview, Jeffrey Bean told him, you know, this is your desk. And for seven years, he worked um, as his right hand man. They were very, very close. Um, he said that with Jeffrey Bean, he got his master's degree. Yeah, for sure. I mean, when you say that Jeffrey Bean was one of the greats, I would argue that it, he wasn't just one of the great American designers. I would argue that he's one of the great designers of the 20th century, for sure. I agree. And, um, and you know, I think today he's probably less recognized for his achievements. And when I was studying Albert's work with Jeffrey Bean and going through all the books, you see this, you know, really another legendary designer that in some ways I think is is a, a little bit forgotten in, in history books. For sure. But let's talk about Albert's work with Jeffrey Bean, because you write in the book um, that he was, quote, 
deeply influenced by his design philosophy and his defiance of trends. Mm-hmm. So might you speak on this a little bit further in terms of the impact that Bean had on Elbaz's developing aesthetic? So I think with Jeffrey Bean, um, and and yes, Albert was deeply influenced by him. I think he also, it, this is where he was actually trained about couture and draping and pattern making. He, Albert, learned his design philosophy and this, you know, creating this um, confluence of elegance with comfort and and glam, but also keeping it really simple, which is something that is also, you know, was not prevalent in, in fashion back then. You know, everything was more sturdy, you know, the, the tailoring, everything was, you know, uh, boxier in the uh, mid-1980s. And, you know, Jeffrey Bean was a master tailor. He really encouraged Albert to also develop his own language within his fashion house, you know, so it was not just about recreating what Jeffrey Bean was doing. But I think what Jeffrey Bean was doing that Albert really took into his DNA was to understand women's anatomy and freedom of movement and really to create contemporary fashion at at its best. Um, and and to not be afraid of something that's um, new on the one hand, but not following what everyone else is doing at the same time. So I think comfort and quality and style and, you know, standing the test of time, these are all things that I would also attribute to the later work of Albert Elbaz. Yeah, for sure. Sure. So he was there for seven years, side by side with Bean. And after all this experience under his belt, what happened next is haute couture came calling. What happened in 1996, as you write, that, quote, changed the course of fashion's history? (laughs) Absolutely. I think um, this is when he got his first chance. And I think the story about how he got his first chance in French couture is an incredible story on its own and also so telling about Albert's unique personality. I talked to Ralph Toledano, who was in 1996 appointed to um, as president of the, house, the French house of Guy La Roche. Mm-hmm. And he was looking for a creative director for the house. And he had this pile of portfolios, again, the huge portfolios we just talked about, piling on his desk. Um, and between the pile of black portfolios, one portfolio stands out because it's cherry red. <laughs> <laughs> and it says um, Albert on top of Elbaz in, you know, five letters on top of five letters in black. And he said that even before he opened the portfolio, he understood that, you know, this is someone who doesn't just understand fashion. He understands you know, marketing and branding. And he said, you know, here's a a, a, a brand ready to launch. Um, and then he opened um, his portfolio. And again, we mentioned Albert's sketching. So his, his sketches are incredible. And another thing that you can see in the exhibition is how his sketches develop from the age of six to the age of almost 60. They remain playful and 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 beautiful and and free freely made, but you see how they become mature and he creates his um, fashion language through his illustrations. Mm-hmm. 
So he opens the portfolio. It's amazing. And he invites Albert to the interview. And Albert shows up wearing a red suit <laughs> with red socks and red shoes. And this is when he knew, you know, that he found um, his next designer, which turned out to be um, a huge success. It was a bet to take on unfamiliar designer. It turned out to be incredible. Um, the result was incredible. The, everyone was really, really happy with his work at Gila Roche. And I think it also, you know, this is when Albert leaves New York to, to Paris and really becomes a part of um, the French uh, couture world. Mm -hmm. How would you characterize Elbaz's work at Guy Laroche? What's interesting to see about his work at Guy Laroche is that he always estimated the history of the house, of every house that he walked into. It was never about just bringing, you know, a blank page, um, you know, forgetting about everything that came before and like, you know, doing wild things that might draw attention at that specific point, but might not uh, live the heritage of the house. Mm -hmm. um, so the first thing he did was to go into the archives and to see how he can renew within the archives of Gila Roche. And Gila Roche was already known for, you know, this mix of, of high and low, creating um, modern sense, you know, ev even in the 1960s, you know, his women would wear couture at night and then, you know, switch into sweaters during the day, uh, the beginning of the jet set. Um, Albert understood the spirit and really created his own interpretation for that spirit within Guy La Roche. Uh, I'm not sure it was 100% um, understood during his time. I think um, it was only later that people understood his work at Guy La Roche and also at Saint Laurent because a lot of what Albert was doing about was about bringing simplicity and comfort into couture. Exactly those things that he learned from Jeffrey Bean, but they were never about, you know, Albert said that he always prefers whispering rather than screaming. And I think this is also telling about Albert's work that he wanted it to be um, more about being wearable and understanding um, what women are looking for rather than, you know, reinventing them, reinventing fashion, creating something that might not be wearable, but, you know, would, would be the hype. So hype was not his thing, which is quite interesting given the fact of what happens in 1998. There's a lot of press around this. Young Albert's prediction involving YSL comes true. How did this come about and why exactly was his tenure at YSL so short? Because this actually seems like a really good fit. You know, you mentioned um, earlier that he was actually tapped to helm the house by YSL himself. So what happened? Yeah. Um, so his work was noticed by Pierre Berger, um, YSL's partner. And then Albert was appointed as the designer of um, the Ready to Wear collection. It was going very well, and and it was known back then that the the bigger plan was that Albert succeeds YSL, um, and that he knew that this is coming sooner or later. Um, at this point, and Albert was doing really well. Again, he was going into the archives, understanding you know the tuxedo. Um, the safari suit, understanding the DNA of YSL and thinking about how to bring 
modernity into it and you know while keeping YSL's language and you know it's during the exhibition I was you know I'm 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 diving in eBay Etsy um the real real um I I realized at some point that if I look for um YSL you know vintage clothing I can see what was done by Albert and what was not. I can really see um, his handwriting in, mm-hmm. in his designs, but you can see how it's so YSL, you know, he's using gold, he's using, um, you know, the language of couture as defined by YSL, but making it modern, and making it simple and, you know, ready to wear, you know, in the full sense of the words. Mm-hmm. It ended abruptly uh, <laughs> about um, a year later, Gucci bought the the fashion house and replaced Albert with Tom Ford. Um, so his dream was cut short. And it's amazing to see, you know, on one hand, he was and he was he was speaking very openly about it. He was completely heartbroken, <laughs> you know, um, naturally, but also so grateful years later um, to have, you know, he said he had two of the greatest designers of the 20th century as his teachers. He said, I got my master's degree with Jeffrey Bean and my PhD with Saint Laurent, and they were my mentors. So, yes, it's an interesting, it's interesting to see how he always wanted to also learn from the lowest points are also where you, you, you learn how to grow. He said that he actually wanted to quit fashion. His other dream was to be a doctor. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so at that point, he was even considering um, going to medicine school. But eventually he realized that his heart is in fashion. And um, after a year of traveling and he designed a collection for um, the Italian house of uh, Crizia in Milan, he realized that he needs to find a home, that he Mm -hmm. should stay in fashion, but he needs to find a new home. Yeah. Well, thankfully, he did not go to med school. (laughs) <laughs> um, and and this is like so fascinating, I think, because Elbaza's destiny in many ways seems to be tied to legacy houses. You know, he, when he started at La Roche in 1997, an article in Women's Wear Daily noted, Elbaz considers himself to be in the same position as John Galliano at Dior, Alexander McQueen at Givenchy, and Stella McCartney at Chloe. We are taking this these historic houses and trying to make them right, is what he said. So, you know, first there was this short-lived year at or so at Guy Laroche, then less than two years at YSL, but was really this third go-around with reviving a historic house where Elbaz unarguably hits his stride. And this was, of course, at the House of Lavin. Can you tell us a little bit about his tenure there and the critical reception of his work? Of course, it's it's interesting. While I was listening to you reading this quote, I realized that um, all these names that he aspired or compared himself um, to be with, these fashion houses are now showing tributes in his honor in the exhibition, which is amazing to note. Um, so yes, I, I think this was his real breakthrough in fashion was when he was appointed art director of Lanvin. Uh, which is, by the way, the longest standing fashion house in in, in Paris. It was established in 1888. <laughs> but it's interesting that um, 
when Albert walked into the fashion house, it was in, you know, after a gradual decline of, of many, many years. Um, and it is said that it was about to go bankrupt. And when Albert walked in, he had this famous saying that he wanted to awaken the sleeping beauty, that he knew that all he had to do was just wake this uh, beautiful fashion house. And again, he learns the archive. And if you learn his work at Lanva and you look at the archival pieces um, from, from the fashion house, you see how, again, he understands her language, her values, uh, the mother and daughter logo and how mother, mothers and daughters are really, you know, important in, in the heart of, of the fashion house in general. And in Lanva, I think he's, you know, bringing full force everything that he learned in the military, in Shankar, at Jeffrey Bean, at Gila Roche. He's bringing um, a new spirit um, that wants to create comfort and quality and never trying to become trendy mm -hmm. and always wanting to whisper. <laughs> um, but at the same time, reviving this incredible fashion house. And, you know, within a season or two, you know, every major starlet, every, you know, Hollywood star is wearing Lanvin on, on the red carpet. Um, and, you know, it's becoming a, a, a sensation. Um, I think... What Albert does is, first of all, he's talking about liberating women through clothes. He's talking about um, hugging them and, you know, giving them strength. I love his quote. He once said that if he was a producer in Hollywood, the next um, James Bond would be a woman and he would call her Jane Bond. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, I think it's time that we have our... Jane Bond, don't you think? <laughs> Absolutely. I think there has been kind of like a little like hint here or there discussion of that in the past. Let's I see. wish, you know, again, another, um, you know, pr predictive uh, <laughs> uh, vision would come to life. Yeah. Well, I, I think um, in the last film, in the last Bond film, the new 007 was actually a woman. So not mm -hmm. James Bond, but the we're getting there. Numbers, so we're, we're getting in there. that direction. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Um, um, I love that you're a Bond fan, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> we have actually done um, an episode on Bond girl style for any of our listeners who might also be Bond fans, if you want to go back and listen to that. Which is your favorite, by the way? Oh, God, my favorite Bond girl or, or my favorite Bond movie? Bond movie. Oh, gosh. I mean, I like Octopussy quite a lot, um, but Live and Let Die is pretty fantastic as well. <laughs> I, think Jane, I think Jane Seymour is my all-time favorite Bond girl. <laughs> <laughs> One of the things that I have always really admired about his work at Love Van is how innovative and beautiful, of course, it was, but ultimately wearable it was. So I'm hoping you might speak to this a little bit further. You've touched it on a, a little bit already. Um, speak to this a little bit further in terms of his overall design philosophy, because um, I also read this other interesting quote when I was preparing to speak to you. I think it was from the 90s. He said, um, it's great to have a beautiful dress on a hanger in the store, but in the end, it needs to sell. It's true. 
I think, you know, what, what he does, he, he when he brings this new spirit into the fashion house, he keeps the lightness of dresses that is really, I would say, um, emblematic of the 1920s. When we think of Lanvin, of Jean Lanvin, we think of her, I think, in the 1920s and, you know, these lightweight dresses um, that are also so freeing and so, you know, enabling movement. So I think there's this um, direct link uh, that connects his DNA to this specific era. The 1920s of Lanvin, I think, uh, were a major, major influence on, on his work. Um, and, you know, this is a time, um, again, a, a liberating time in terms of changes in women's style and women's dress. And another thing that he does is that he adds imperfection. Mm. He said he doesn't like perfection. Um, he said he, he thinks it's dangerous because after perfection, there is nothing. And it's so interesting to think about it in terms of also um, looking at women's lives, our lives. You know, there are so many points at which you want to say, you know, it, it doesn't have to be perfect. It's it's fine not to have it perfect. And, you know, he said that he, he actually saw women's lives, um, modern lives as, you know, they, he said they, they're like, they need to be like acrobats. And if they're like acrobats, we need to do everything to help them feel comfortable and, you know, never stop them. So he developed this language that was in, in one hand, you know, lightweight, but it was dramatic. And drama came from the accessories um, you know, this he created this combination of elegance and, and simplicity and not having everything perfect. So you don't have to have it like ironed and it's draping and it's super comfortable. And, you know, the the raw edges, not the, you know, many of the garments, you know, the, the 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 silk was frayed, but not like the Japanese. It wasn't like a takeoff on, you know, the Japanese style. Um, I think it was more about, you know, you remembering that it doesn't have to be perfect. It's fine. You don't have to tuck it in. He was using exposed zippers and, you know, all the clasps. And and these, I, I have to say, I think are inspired by IDF uniforms and <laughs> bags. And Well, also, too, that that is a whole thing with an American fashion specifically. So it might have been a little bit of takeaway from his time in New York. Yeah, 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 definitely. And you have pockets mm -hmm. and, you know, you have you have the things you need. And he was also um, he started showing his shows with um, ballerina slippers, not just um, high heels. So he was giving women, you know, all the opportunities to be dramatic, to feel powerful, but not necessarily um, to change them. Um, Meryl Streep once said about Albert that he was probably her favorite designer. And Meryl Streep said that when she's wearing Albert Elbaz, she never feels like he tries to transform her, just create a better version of herself. Uh, which is, you know, what, what can we want more from, you know, the clothes that we're wearing? For sure, for sure. Well, I mean, he was, the reception of his work at Lavan was not only a critical success, it was a commercial success as well. Um, he had legions of adoring fans. And I think that I speak for a lot of us who are in the fashion industry or on the peripheries of the fashion industry, like we are, um, who loved his work for the house, that what happened in 2015 left us all a little bit perplexed 
and heartbroken. What exactly happened in 2015 that he exited Lampa? Um, wow. Yeah, 2015. Um, it's heartbreaking. It was very abrupt. Uh, Albert was let go of Lanvin um, on a very short notice. I think, you know, the fashion industry was shocked, right? Do you yeah. remember the day you I, heard? You know? I remember it. I was like, what? Yeah. Every, everyone was so confused. Like, this makes absolutely no sense. No sense. I, I agree. And also, uh, I was always a fan of Albert Elbaz at Lanva. I was always buying, you know, ever since I was a student, I was buying on eBay, um, you know, his dresses because that's what I could afford um, secondhand. By the way, interestingly enough, I'm I'm wearing them all the time. They really stand the test of time. Um, and you know, while I was working on this exhibition, on my hardest days, I would be I would wear Albert um, mm. because you know they it was like so comforting. So yeah, um, the details are not very known. Um, it was only discussed within you know in inside courtrooms. Unfortunately, um, it didn't go well. And his exit was um, very sudden. And he talked very openly about this crisis that he had, because, you know, after 14 years of this meteoric success, commercial success for us in New York, you probably remember walking into the store in Madison, you know, it was always the most gorgeous windows and it was, you know, so beautiful. But it just ended. It ended overnight. And, you know, it's it's literally <laughs> a shock. It's, it's ever, People are still scratching their heads over that one. I agree. I agree. Um, yeah. And, and, and apparently it wasn't just us, all of us, who were heartbroken by his dismissal from Lanvin. So was he. And this really tugged at my heartstrings when you write in the book. You quoted him as saying, quote, for the first couple of months, it was pouring rain in Paris and I was walking and walking and walking. And I never knew when I touched my face if it was the rain or my tears. Oof. <laughs> That's a rough one. A rough one. I have to say, I still, it still brings tears in my eyes. I think it's also what is um, it is so inspiring that he was open about this crisis. You know, he was not trying to glorify anything. And what he did in those four years when he took the hiatus from fashion, um, he went on a journey, a journey to meet people who he thought were designing our future. So he traveled to 12 countries to meet with doctors and, you know, um, tech people and biologists and also fashion design students. The quote you just mentioned, um, he said that to the students at Parsons in, in New York, actually. So for in every country that he came to visit, he would give a master class or a lecture for the fashion design department of like the leading school. He also went back to Shankar, by the way, to do the same thing. And it's amazing that he wanted to share not just, you know, the glory of it and, you know, how he dressed, you know, Oprah Winfrey, Michelle Obama and, you know, Rihanna and Beyonce. It was so much more about how you can overcome, you know, the the the, the hardest moments. And how, you know, nothing is expected um, and nothing should be taken for granted. And those lectures, I have to say, he was giving them for four years. 
they are smart and witty and, you know, they can make you um, laugh hysterically. <laughs> he's talking about his weight problems, you know, he's talking <laughs> about, you know, everything, how everything is perfect on Instagram, but not, you know, in everyone's life. And so I took these hours and hours of lectures and condensed them into 40 minutes um, that are in the exhibition. You can see the highlights of these lectures that he's giving. Because Albert loved, um, you know, he's, he believed that in every important um, conversation, there should be something tasty on the table. So um, the creative director of the exhibition, Katie Reese, who worked with Albert for 15 years in Paris, designed the room to look like you're having dinner with Albert. So that's there's a, a dinner table set for 12 people and the lectures are projected on your plates. <laughs> so you're sitting to have dinner with Albert and you're looking at your plate and Albert is talking to you and giving you, you know, advice for life. I call it the room food for thought. Mm, I love that. So that part, what um, his lecture in at Parsons um, is there. When he started the lecture, by the way, he went on stage and then he read on Instagram when Parsons published the lecture. Um, one of the students wrote, please bring um, tissue paper <laughs> because it's going to be tearful. So Albert walked up to the stage and started handing, handing the students um, tissue paper <laughs> so they can wipe their tears. And then he gave everyone chocolate because he thought you need something sweet to go with it. <laughs> well, and this is this is like just so him though, from from what I have heard from people within the industry. <laughs> so his next commercial endeavor involved a lot of learning and listening that had taken place over those intervening years. Um, I guess four years or so. Yeah. Would you tell us a little bit about A to Z Factory, the premise behind it, and what were some of his hopes for the brand? So, yes. Yeah, so after these four years of um, meeting people around the world and meeting students and listening to them, he was mainly, I think, asking questions. He was concerned about our future. He was concerned with sustainability. He was concerned about, you know, mass production and, you know, the abundance of fashion. And he was asking question, you know, do we need more fashion? Do we need more clothes? What is the future of fashion? What is the future of fashion in his personal life? And also, you know, is fashion still in fashion? Right. Well, which is still, it's still like this whole thing that we all are talking about behind the scenes. <laughs> <laughs> yes, exactly. Um, so, after this, you know, four years of, of, of research, he realized that, you know, there, there is a place for fashion, but it needs to be changed dramatically. And this is when he launched um, AZ Factory. So it was, um, he called it a fashion startup mm -hmm. that, first of all, bases itself on technology and innovation, both in the creation of the garments, thinking of eco-friendliness, sustainability, uh, refraining from the use of chemicals, avoiding mass production, but really producing by demand. And the other thing is, and this is the important thing, was creating wearable clothes. I love his quote. He once said um, that fashion should be simple because life is already complicated. <laughs> and it's so true. 
Um, so the clothes of AZ Factory are wearable. Um, many of them are created in um, 3D knitting um, technology that mm -hmm. also enables zero waste. Size that ranges from extra, extra, extra small to extra, extra, extra large. So he's thinking most, you know, mostly about diversity and, you know, having solution for everyone, every woman, day to night. Um, you know, he was not working in um, the seasons, the old fashioned seasons format, mm -hmm. not having fashion shows. He was thinking about how to create like a smart wardrobe that all you have to do is maybe switch your um, top or add a skirt and then you can switch from your Pilates class to a Zoom meeting um, and vice versa and nothing's going to stop you. And the, when you look at this collection, you know, the little details in it are genius. Um, for example, for every dress in the launch collection of AZ Factory, it was launching, launched in January 2021 mm -hmm. um, in the middle of, of the pandemic. And it was his, unfortunately, his first and last collection designed for the fashion house that still continues, by the way. He, so for every dress, he added a metallic chain um, that he attached to the zipper in the back. It was inspired by wetsuits, the scuba suits, uh, to enable you to get dressed and undressed on your own without anyone helping you. And this is also so telling of Albert, you know, and I think everyone needs this type of chain in every dress, right? That you don't get stuck in. <laughs> um, but it also, when you look at it, it's like he's, um, um, he's bejeweling his um, creations. So on one hand, they are simple. On the other hand, they are still, you know, dramatic. They, they draw inspiration from couture, from um, the, the history of fashion, but also his own fashion. When you look at the garments, you see, a little bit of Saint Laurent and a little bit of Lanvin. You see a little bit of Guy Roche, but all the Albert side of it. It's not the, the fashion houses. It's Albert at Lanvin, Albert at Guy Roche, you know, Albert at AZ Factory. And, and it's really, it's 100% Albert Albaz. Yeah. Well, let's talk about your current exhibition. Albert Elbaz Dream Factory, which is, of course, at the Design Museum Holome, as we've already said. It features uh, around 100 garments or so, as well as photographs and other ephemera. Can you tell us a little bit more about the premise of the exhibition and what our listeners might see on view? <laughs> so going back to that recording uh, that I had of Albert, um, you know, he said it, it doesn't need to be a retrospective. It doesn't be, need to be didactic. It needs to be a celebration of life and it needs to tell a new story. So I really, um, I listened to Albert. Um, it's not trying to summarize his life. Um, it's not trying to just give you the history, but also to tell a new story. So the Lori Gallery is dedicated to AZ Factory, the launch collection of AZ Factory, but I divided it into the different stages or stations in Albert's life. So there's a group dedicated to Paris. It's all about the little black dress that he wanted to reinvent. And Katie Reese um, designed them to look like they're sitting in the front row of a fashion show, a very surreal fashion show. Um, the um, Tangier group is dedicated to Albert's uh, city in Morocco. 
And it's inspired by the fabric markets that Albert loved most. And he traveled to Morocco every year, especially to Tangier. Uh, and we have a group dedicated to Cholon, where he grew up. Mm-hmm. And this is all um, dedicated to the pajamas that he designed for AZ Factory. It's the pajama party of the exhibition because his family told me that when he would come to visit in Cholon, He didn't want to see the press. He didn't go to want to go to anything public. All he wanted to do was stay with a family at home and have a pajama party. <laughs> <laughs> so we created like a real pajama party. It's like a rotating platform with di- disco balls and, you know, the light bulbs. And, you know, they're having a real party all created by the um, um, pajamas that Albert designed for AZ Factory. Um, we have the porcelain dolls that Albert designed for Lanvin for um, all these years. We have um, dozens of the, the little porcelain dolls that he designed. Um, he was inspired by the Théâtre de la Mode exhibition. Uh, so he always created um, small dolls. He loved dolls in general. He said he loves dolls, but he doesn't like women that look like dolls. Um, and we have... Uh, gowns from Lanva. We have the dinner table that I was telling you about. We have the Meryl Streep dress, um, the the golden dress that he designed for her for the Oscars of 2012. For um, she won Best Actress for um, Iron Lady. We have hundreds, uh, hundreds of photos and um, videos and personal objects that I collected from the family, including his. Um, pencil box, sketches, his Legion of Honor. He's um, He received the Legion of Honor from uh, the French government twice, the Medal of the City of, of Paris, uh, chosen as uh, one of Times 100 most influential people, the same um, edition with Barack Obama and um, Steve Jobs. Mm-hmm. So... All together, these um, objects and garments together tell the story of Albert, but really not in a retrospective way. But they also try to tell a new story about life and love. And then you finish your visit with a tribute show, The the Love Rings Love, um, that was shown in Paris. We discussed in the beginning. Yeah. So wonderful. Could you tell us a little bit more about who participated in that Love Brings Love tribute? Because I think our listeners will find this quite interesting. Yes, of course. The interesting story about this tribute show is that it actually started, it was actually started by Albert himself. Mm, interesting. Um, and this is um, less lesser known. Um, in 2018, Albert was really worried about the political environment in oh, in the what world. What do you think of 2022? <laughs> I don't want to know. Um, so he wanted to draw inspiration from the Théâtre de la Mode exhibition in France that was shown after World War II um, to express the message of um, hope and going back to life after the war. He reached out to 20 fashion designers to create a fashion show that for one night would show the world um, and express a message of love and peace and unity between the designers as well. 20 designers already agreed to participate in that show, but because of the pandemic, it was put on hold. Uh, So yeah, so that dream was kind of 
waiting. And then five months after Albert passed away, his partner, Alex, um, and his um, brand, AZ Factory, reached out to the same designers that already agreed and to additional 26 designers. Um, among them are Gucci, Dior, Hermes, Alexander McQueen, um, you know, Ralph Lauren, you know, everyone is there, really. And they each showed um, an ensemble during the fashion show in October that paid homage and tribute to Albert under the mantra of his mother, love brings love. Mm -hmm. And it's so fascinating because some of them are inspired by Albert's work, whereas a couple of the other ones actually feature Albert in one form or another. Could you tell us about some of your favorites? It's, you know, it's it's beautiful to see um, how diverse um, Albert's influence is because, yes, some of them are um, paying tribute to the love that Albert spreaded. You know, many of them said that, you know, before shows, he would send them chocolates and flowers um, and greeting cards that he would illustrate. So, you know, many of the ensembles are uh, made of hearts. Jean-Paul Gaultier um, created like um, petted hearts inspired by the pincushions of um, tailoring um, and they are red and, and beautiful. Um, some of them are paying homage to um, the iconic look of Albert. Mm-hmm. Um, he, you know, he was famous for his um, black glasses and um, bow tie. So Balenciaga created, um, Demon of Asalia created um, a huge pink garment. Pink was his favorite color, Albert's favorite color. So a uh, huge pink with a huge bow in the back. <laughs> um, Rosie Asuline um, created a garment that looks like it is Albert's um, outfit becoming a dress. So, you know, the glasses are actually at the chest and um, his jacket becomes a skirt. My uh, 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 favorite use of Albert's portrayal is um, the Dries van Otten, um ensemble. Um, it's um, jacquard woven um, with Albert's self-portrait of himself, like an illustration of, of himself. So Dries Van Oten took this one and woven it into the red coat. And it's so smart because it's designed um, to look when when the model walked in the runway and she's walking towards you, it really looks like Albert is the one walking your, oh, your wow. direction. It's like completely animated and, and, and beautiful. Oh, I love that so much. Um, curious, what do you think Albert would think about the exhibition? And also, let's tag on to that. What do you think his legacy is to contemporary fashion? Uh, have you heard me sigh? <laughs> 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 I think, um, you know, working on this exhibition has been uh, probably the deepest experience that I've had because I really, I dived into his world and um, the treasures that he left um, and I had to collect from so many areas and, and you know, from different people and friends and family because he didn't want to have a retrospective. So he never kept an archive. He never, you know, organized everything, anything. Alex, his partner, said that, you know, he, um, Albert would throw his sketches, you know, to the garbage basket and, and Alex would take it out to keep it um, and document everything. But Albert was not about it. And throughout this whole process, you know, it it was in the beginning, it was the main question that I was asking myself, you know, would Albert approve? 
would you love it? What would you think? You know, and and I I I was I was very concerned with you know giving him the respect that he deserved. You know, Pierpaolo Pizzoli uh, from the, from Valentino at one interview said that he's not sure that the fashion industry treated as Albert as well as it should have. And I was thinking the whole way through that, you know, this exhibition should treat him well and it should honor him the way he deserved in his hometown, you know, where he, you know, where his, his dreams began. I had the privilege to work with the people who loved him and surrounded him for most of his life. So Alex Koo, his partner, Katie Reese, the creative director, Shelley Wertheim, his teacher, his family. The more I shared with them, you know, the, the, what, what was going on in the exhibition and, and Katie Reese, who worked so closely with him, realized all these dreams and created these fantasies. Um, I was more and more reassured that, that, you know, the saddest thing about this exhibition is that he can't be a part of it, that he's not attending it and, and, getting to see how everything about this exhibition pays tribute and love and respect, not just to him as a designer, but to him as, as a person. Mm-hmm. Um, at, at the final day of setting up the exhibition, um, Katie walked down the stairs to the main gallery and someone left a chair, <laughs> a, an empty chair in the middle of the gallery. And I was standing next to her and she said, you know, he would always bring a chair when we would finish, you know, looking <sighs> at things and sit down and just look at it. And, you know, we were, you know, it was a very emotional moment because, you know, they were so close and, um, you know, we, we looked at the, the empty chair and I said, you know, what, what do you think he would say? And, and Katie said, you know, he would probably say, you know, this is great. Now let's change a couple of things. <laughs> <laughs> when you know someone that well. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so what do you think is the lasting legacy that he left to fashion of today? I think Albert's legacy is comprised of two aspects. One is being, you know, the designer, the genius designer that understood um, the construction of a garment and couture and making it wearable and comfortable and understanding women's lives. And his aspiration to hug women mm-hmm. by wearing his his clothes. And and I think and he was um and and this had so much truth to it. Because this is the other aspect of Albert, and it's about being human and understanding that at the end of the day, and he used to quote Jeffrey Bean, who would say, it's not about the front of the garment or the back of the garment, it's about the person living inside it. And I think that led his career and design legacy, uh, but also him as, as a person who always made sure to spread love, to honor people, to be respectful, um, and and to do that also by designing clothes, but also about the way uh, you take part in the world. Mm-hmm. And we can all use more of that, for sure. I agree. 
He said um, another, yeah, you know, another quote of uh, uh, of his wisdom. He said that you know we're living in a world of likes, but the world needs love. Ah, uh, if people would like to learn more about the exhibition, where can they find more information? Uh, where can they learn more about your work? And I didn't even think to ask you about this until just now. But will this exhibition be traveling? <gasps> Think fingers crossed. We need to uh, send all the good energy for it to travel. Uh, I I definitely think it, it should travel, and this is um, um, something we're we're definitely working on, thinking about more information about the exhibition. So there's the museum website, Design Museum Holon. Holon is H O L O N, and there's an English website with all the details about the exhibition. Uh, we also had an amazing uh, review at Vogue.com and at Forbes. So this is also um, a great read um, about me, my website, Yara Kedar. I also send newsletters every once in a while about interesting things that I do. And of course, Instagram. Yeah. All right. Before we sign off for today, um, because if I know you, you most likely have other projects lined up. <laughs> uh, <laughs> do you, you have anything that you would like to tease that is in the works? Oh, wow. Um, so first of all, I'm, I'm writing my PhD thesis, which is, you know, just this tiny project <laughs> in the works. <laughs> um, and another thing I've been working on, you can see my board behind me, is a book about fashionable moments in art masterpieces. Ooh, excellent. Yeah. <laughs> well, when that comes out in a couple of years, please consider yourself invited back. <laughs> Thank you so much, April. Yara, thank you so much for joining us. This was a delight. True delight. Thank you so much for having me. Yara, thank you for sharing this beautiful world of Albert Albez with us, both here on the show, but of course via the exhibition at the Design Museum Halon and Halon Israel, and also the accompanying exhibition catalog, which is chock full of beautiful photographs of Albez's sketches and garments. It goes without saying that his greatness has really left a void in the landscape of contemporary fashion. This is true. He is missed, but he is definitely not forgotten. That does it for us today, dress listeners. May you consider where the dreams reside in your closet next time you get dressed. Remember, we do love hearing from you. So if you would like to write to us, you can do so at dress at iheartmedia.com. Or you can also DM us on Instagram at dressed underscore podcast, which is where we post images and reels accompanying each week's episodes. If you would like to take the time to rate and review us on your podcast listening platform of choice, we always appreciate it. Thank you as always to our producers, Casey Pagram, Holly Fry, and everyone else at iHeartRadio that makes the show possible each week. We will catch you on Thursday with more dress. 